0: Most of my life was spent chasing times, mainly because I ran really fast in high school at 401, as you mentioned. And when you run 401, you know, it's always in your head that like, oh, man, there's a second in change that I can get out of my body to get in that elusive, you know, venerated sub four club so you think and you obsess over times and I certainly did to an unhealthy degree in my college and then a little bit post-collegiate life as well so I think coming to terms with and realizing and recognizing that that doesn't really matter anymore was something that was incredibly freeing for myself
1: That was Steve Magnus. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you're listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Steve wears many hats in the world of running and performance. He's been the head cross-country and assistant track coach at the University of Houston since 2012, and he's also worked with numerous professional athletes at the Olympic and World Championship level. He's the co-author of Peak Performance and The Passion Paradox, both of which he wrote with former podcast guest Brad Sulberg, and he's also the author of The Science of Running. Steve also co-hosts two podcasts on coaching, which dives deep into the art and science of training and coaching for runners, and The Growth Equation, a weekly no-bullshit discussion on well-being and performance. As an athlete in the early 2000s, Steve was one of the top scholastic runners in the country, running 401 for the mile, which at the time was the sixth fastest high school mile in U.S. history. This was an awesome conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I did taking part in it. Steve told me about how he spends and splits his time amongst his various interests and pursuits, what his relationship with running looks like these days, and how he's channeled his competitive instincts throughout his life. We also discussed how the past year has challenged him as a coach, the lack of checks and balances in the sport of track and field, and why he believes the sport has a long way to go before it can be considered truly professional. We also talked about what spurred his interest in coaching, how his time at the Oregon Project affected his outlook and trajectory as a coach, and a lot more. (laughs) A big thank you to Tracksmith for their continued support of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running apparel brand born from a desire to celebrate both the history and evolving culture of the sport. They recently released their spring collection full of stylish gear perfected for the pursuit of personal excellence. It's designed for running hard and logging miles as the season shifts. My favorite piece from this latest collection is the Reggie Half Tight with a built-in liner folks. They also have a non-lined version of this piece, but I'm telling you, once you go lined, you will never go back. At least I won't anyway. They're perfect for these cool spring mornings, and I love wearing them for track workouts when it's time to run fast. Right now, Tracksmith is offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. Just use the code MARIO15, that's MARIO15, when you check out at tracksmith.com. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder. Man, I just love these sunglasses. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, They're super fun. They come in a number of awesome styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger's Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. Gooders are also super affordable, with most pairs coming in at just $25 to $35 a piece, which makes them way more appealing than the expensive shades you're almost guaranteed to crush or lose. So if you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair— or maybe two pair or three of Gooders, and head over to gooder.com slash mario and get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R.com slash mario. That's M-A-R-I-O to get 15% off your entire order. Your face will thank you. All right, that's all I've got for now. Please enjoy the following uninterrupted conversation with Steve Magnus. <coughs> there's a lot that i want to get into with you but one thing i've always been curious about is how you spend your time uh you're well known as a coach to both collegiate athletes and professionals you're an author you host a couple podcasts you speak and consult from time to time and you're recently married what does a typical day look like for you break it down for me
0: Oh man, uh, my life is a chaotic mess. I'll I'll say that I try to keep it organized by by I call themes. Mm-hmm. So rather than each day looking the same, um, different days I have different emphasis on different things. So for instance, Tuesdays and Thursdays are like heavy writing days. So after I get done with practice, because Well, let's step back. Almost every morning starts with college practice. So we practice in the morning. So generally from about 7.30 till about 9.00. Okay. Okay. Um, I do my best writing in the morning and with coffee. So generally two to three days a week, generally always Tuesday and Thursday. Right after practice, I go get some coffee. Normally non-pandemic times, I go sit at a coffee shop, now I sit in my office or at my home and I just crank on whatever writing project I'm doing from about nine till noon to one that day. I just like diving in, going at it. Okay, on days that I'm not writing, that is my creative time to either record a podcast that I host, so generally those are always on Wednesday is my one with Brad, the Growth Equation podcast Mm -hmm. we record on Wednesday. And then Friday uh, morning at 9 a.m., I record one with uh, John Marcus called On Coaching. So you can see how my mornings kind of fill fill up there. And then my afternoons are basically spent um, either researching... (laughs) Okay, so I do a lot of reading and researching and split times between, you know, pop psych kind of books and then heavy in the weeds, like journal articles. And I try and do that af- after lunch or writing, figuring out schedules, training for athletes, okay? And my, my pre-married life, I used to spend all day Sunday as my training schedule day. Mm-hmm. But my wife is a teacher, so she... uh her only off time, especially during this pandemic craziness of uh, teaching online and in person, her only t- off time is the weekends. So I try to reserve the bulk of a, that for us to spend quality time together. So that means my, my schedule writing has gotten uh, fixed into, uh, into my afternoons a couple days a week. And, you know, um, there's a, honestly, there's, there's a lot of uh, just like anybody else. Some time when I'm just procrastinating and spending too much time on Twitter or social media or you know Netflix or whatever
1: have you. Do you give yourself a hard stop time at the end of every day? In terms of work, <laughs> um, I should. I
0: do in terms of anything that that I I call takes like intellectual like power, mm-hmm. right? Any. It, any sort of work I do at night or in the afternoons, let's say past like five o'clock is what I would call menial work. So in the college coaching job, it's like looking for recruits, talking to recruits if I need to, like sending out emails if I need to. And then anything besides that, it's basically like reading, you know, but I'm not doing any sort of creative, any sort of like deep dive, um, and again, most of the time I try and reserve my evenings for like quality time with, you know, spouse and, um, try and, try and shut off, but I have a hard time shutting off. I'm kind of a work type person.
1: Have you always been that way?
0: Um, honestly, no, <laughs> I did not, you know, growing up in high school, uh, especially I, I, did about the bare minimum to get by in any course or subject or class I took, all the way through college, I would say, through most of my college, maybe my senior year. I, I stopped that. But I would do the bare minimum. But where I would, I would say this came from is I would do everything I could in terms of things that I cared about. And in high school and college, it was running. So my running would take precedence. And I'd be like, Workaholic in terms of getting that better in terms of the miles, the workouts, the core routines, the extra stuff, the lifting. Um, but intellectual pursuits, no, I I didn't care at that time.
1: Where does your own running fit into the equation these days, if it fits in there at all?
0: So we should uh, we should uh, specify if I'm healthy or not. Number one, <laughs> when you're healthy. Okay, when I'm healthy, I try to run the easy days with uh, my men and women's college team, so that gets me four to five days a week of running, and then on weekends, generally, I'll I'll run with my my wife, Mm -hmm. um, so that I get you know probably six days, sometimes seven days of running. In, Um, I try when I'm healthy to do something hard about once every ten days. Is my my kind of barometer, not because I'm trying to train for something, but just because I found that it's really helpful to remember what it feels like to push myself and be tired and want to give up and want to quit in something because it just helps from a mental standpoint, but also from a coaching standpoint of reminding myself what I'm um, I'm, I'm making my athletes do.
1: When you do those sessions where you'll challenge yourself? Are you doing them solo or do you jump in with your athletes?
0: <laughs> um, you know, it it varies. Uh, you know, a couple years ago, I would jump in with my athletes all the time. Uh, now, I my running tends to go in a couple months healthy and then I strain my calf and then I'm out a little bit. So I'm trying to be a, a better coach to myself and not jumping in my with my athletes at that point because the competitive instincts will will take over, and I'll want to push too hard for for where I'm at at that point in terms of like my body can s- sustain. but my preference is always to you know jump in with uh, jump in with my athletes, and they they tend to enjoy it as long as I don't do too much.
1: When you're not healthy and you can't run, does something else fill that time for you?
0: Yeah. So I kind of alternate between elliptigo rides. Okay. So I use elliptigo for either steady or hard work. And then I actually, you know, we recently moved and we're right next to still in Houston, obviously, but we're right next to two parks, one which has about seven miles of trail. The other has about a gosh, a 10 mile straight um, out and back trail. So I, 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 I go on either long bike rides sometimes or a lot of times I go I just go on long walks. So like, you know, couple hour walks. And you know, that kind of fills my time. Are you healthy right now? <laughs> I'm just starting to be.
1: What are you getting over?
0: So I have this chronic kind of calf strain that well, this cycle of calf strains that stems from um, a couple years ago when I was training with my college athletes and was in really good shape. And then uh, tore, I had a partial tear in my Achilles. And ever since then, I think, well, one, I did the dumb thing and trying to, you know, run through, make my way through it until I realized it was torn. And I think I have some imbalances on that side that Mm. contributes to just the calves kind of going and the Achilles not handling the load as much. So I had to be really careful on that. Um, and as I said, sometimes I'm, I'm not the best coach to myself.
1: You were an incredibly accomplished athlete in high school and even into college a little bit. You were Really well-known for running 401 in the mile. I think that was sixth or seventh all-time U.S. I mean, the record books seem like they're getting rewritten every week now, so I have no idea where that even stands. And then you competed for a a little while uh, post-collegiately. When was the last time that you ran a race for yourself? (sighs) Good question. Um. Gosh,
0: an actual race. Uh I think the last official race I ran was actually a half marathon. I ran, gosh, maybe five or six years ago at this point, where I ran one oh six for the half and it was a local it was like a, a Houston half marathon in um in the fall and I out kicked um another you know actually a really good runner kia dandana went on to do some great things and i think we dropped like a 430 last mile and that's the first time my calf went is <laughs> right after i i remember Man. i remember um trying to cool down and being like nope can't cool down and uh ever since then it's uh it's been kind of a um a back and forth. I will say, I haven't raced much, but every year we do this for with my college cross-country team is we do this two-man, four-by-eight relay. Mm-hmm. We took it from running with the Buffaloes. Kids enjoy it. It's a nice sharpening workout. And that's the one thing that I'll come back for every year. And it's not a race, but it's two 800s with, you know, with like two minutes and change rest in between so it's like a race effort it is a race effort for me it's it's to the max but no matter kind of what kind of fitness i'm in as long as i'm healthy i'll i'll jump in that thing and and it sucks but that's the only race experience i get
1: (laughs) do you spike up for that
0: (laughs) normally i do last year i i did not because i was coming out of uh, I was coming out of one of these cycles, so I I didn't wear spikes for the first time, and I was in no shape to do it. But we had one of our athletes, um, one of our athletes got sick going into it, and there was a a, a uh, open spot, and. They were like, coach, you got to do this. You got to do this. And I'm like, I have not run anything. Like I have not run sub, I don't know, 530 pace on anything up to that point. I was just getting back into it. So two days before, I did one four hundred in 60 seconds um, in, in just trainers. And then two days later, <laughs> I put on some... Uh, I had to find some flats that were like, you know, five years old since I hadn't worn flats in a long time. And uh, you know, see what I could do out there.
1: Probably not the kindest treatment for your your feeble calves. There,
0: no. As I said, I'm not the best when it comes to coaching myself, especially when my athletes, my college athletes, you know, want me to do something. Normally, I, I kind of give in.
1: You're what thirty five or so at this point. Thirty six. Thirty six. Yep. Do you have any desire in the next few years to? put some concerted effort into training for something, whether it's another half marathon or maybe just giving the marathon a shot?
0: <laughs> you know, I make a joke all the time with some of my athletes that I'm taking my 30s off to come back in my 40s. Okay. Um, so maybe there's that. But, you know, honestly, I I don't really. Um, I, you know, I know I could, you know, my... PRs will say don't reflect maybe my ability or I haven't even raced a marathon ever. Um, But I don't have that much desire to do it mm-hmm. for whatever reason. So I think my competitive instincts come out in other... Areas and running is just something that, like, is part of me and that I enjoy doing at this point.
1: When did that switch flip for you when running wasn't that primary competitive outlet and you really started to channel it into other areas of your life?
0: I would say it was probably my second or third year of coaching college, and that I was in really good shape. So it was a little before that 106 half marathon. I was training with um, Brian Barraza at that time, who was, you know, one of who went on to be one of the, you know, NCAA All American, all that stuff. At that time, he was, I think, a 1350 type 5K guy. I was either a sophomore and junior, and we would essentially train together. So I would hop into workouts. Um, and drag him through workouts at that time because he was our best guy and I wanted to to push him. And I really realized at that time, I remember stepping back and thinking like, man, I'm in really good shape. Brian is killing it. And I'm just, I'm with him in workouts and like pushing him on some and like helping him out. And it's not, I mean, it's hard, but it's not crazy, crazy hard. And I remember sitting there thinking, and I was like, I have no desire to race. Like, I don't, it sounds weird, but I, like, I don't care. Like, I am enjoying, like, helping this kid out. Um, and that's kind of, at, at that point, it's kind of gone further in that direction. But at that point, I realized that my competitive instincts in racing, like the PRs, the chasing things, like, for myself, it, it didn't really matter anymore. Did it feel like
1: a weight was lifted off your shoulders?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because most of my life was spent chasing times, mainly because I ran really fast in high school at 401, as you mentioned. And when you run 401, you know, it's always in your head that like, oh, man, there's a second in change Mm -hmm. that I can get out of my body to get in that elusive, you know, venerated sub-four club. So you think and you obsess over times, and I certainly did to an unhealthy degree in my college and then a little bit post-collegiate life as well. So I think coming to terms with and realizing and recognizing that that doesn't really matter Mm -hmm. anymore was something that was incredibly freeing for myself.
1: I want to talk a bit about the here and now. We're having this conversation in late March. This episode will probably come out early mid April sometime. It's an Olympic year, odd as it seems to say that, in 2021. We just saw the NCAA cross country championships happen, also the NCA indoor championships happening. It seems like we will get back on track in terms of the normal rhythm of the year from here on out what do things look like for you between now and the end of the year after the pandemic year plus that we just had where things were on pause and there was so much uncertainty
0: yeah i mean it's still it's still so much uncertainty around things i think that it's going to take some time to get back into the the normal you know um from a collegiate standpoint it's, you know, we're cruising along in an outdoor season and it feels somewhat normal, but it's it's just strange. You know, we're having a, a very local kind of collegiate season where we don't really travel much outside of, well, we don't travel much at all outside of the state of Texas. And we just kind of, it, it kind of reminds me of high school track again. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, on the post-collegiate side, a couple marathoners I work with, it's this, you know, the same in the sense that you're sitting there asking and saying well what do you want out of this we don't know when races are going to be back to normal what it what what do you want to accomplish and both on on both sides i've kind of tried to just have conversations with athletes on on what kind of motivates you and what what are you trying to do versus the normal conversation of well, we've got the Boston Marathon at this point, so we've got to do the A, B, and C, or we've got the conference championship at this time, and we've got to get ready for this. And it's 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 taken a lot of adjustment, and I'm sure it's going to take some more
1: as we navigate out of this. Let's hit rewind and look at the past year. How did it challenge you as A coach where everything was on pause. You didn't have events for your athletes to work toward on the collegiate side of things. I mean, you've got some athletes who were getting ready to enter like their last season uh, and you had to help them work through that. You've got professionals, post collegiates, uh, who have nothing to you know, nothing to work toward in some cases. It's how they make their living. I'd love to just understand a little bit more about how you navigated that from a a coaching standpoint, maybe how it challenged you, and then ultimately how you think it's going to help you grow.
0: Yeah, it was really difficult. Um, And I think in some ways I handled it well, in some ways I didn't. Um, You know, on the college side, I really turned a lot of my focus and attention to that because I could I could see that we had a lot of, I call them kids. They're not kids. They're young men and women, but I'm going to call them kids. Um, We had a lot who didn't quite know what to do. And you could see their motivation was there at the beginning, but the longer it kind of, the pandemic kind of, you know, um, lasted and the more uncertainty that occurred it kind of hit them pretty hard. And these are kids who, you know, in some instances, were stuck on a university campus that had no... We couldn't have official practices or anything like that. Um, They didn't have any races. They didn't have classes, really. They were online classes, right? And it gets kind of lonely and all that kind of stuff. So... You know, I saw my job as trying to support. And what we did in the fall was we had weekly Zoom meetings where we just talk. And sometimes we talk training, sometimes we talk, you know, running and that stuff, but sometimes we talk life, you know. We had, we talked about, um, Everything that was going on in terms of uh, racial dynamics in the in the country at the time, and unpacking that, and I I, I just kind of felt like we needed to create some sort of connection, mm-hmm. and and that was what was missing, and that if we did that, like it would help people get through until we got back to normal. So a, a, as a coach, I think especially working with that on the collegiate side, it. I don't know. It 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 made me realize how important the mental emotional component of it is. And honestly, I mean this sounds kind of bad for a coach to say who's like supposed to be about winning and stuff like that, etc. But it really made me realize how small like
1: sport is <laughs> in actuality. Dig a little deeper into that. What do you mean by that statement?
0: I just mean I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in what we do and running in particular and I I get it I'm that way too as you can hopefully tell but in the grand scheme of things you know when we're we're going through this pandemic it doesn't really matter as much as we think it does like it matters to us and that's po- that can be powerful but it's not I don't know. I think sometimes we get so kind of uh, narrowed in on this on this on this world that we forget like the bigger picture out there. And I think this pandemic, more than anything, has helped me kind of zoom out and hopefully see the the bigger picture a little bit.
1: Yeah, I can appreciate that. I've had similar conversations with my athletes, who are all post-collegiates. Most of them not professionals, but they take their hobby of running very seriously. And that's great. They have goals that they want to go after, ways that they want to improve. But sometimes in a situation like this, it's healthy to remind them and remind ourselves as coaches that it's just running.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think you're, you're spot on there. And I think, you know, I'd be curious to see how you handle this, Mario. But it's, it's like the more I coach, the more I, I think it's our job to give that perspective and be the person who's kind of sees the bigger picture mm-hmm. sometimes and 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 steps in when needs to.
1: Yeah, well, for me, and I don't know when I came to this realization, I think it was gradual over time, but when I'm working with an athlete, it's important for me to understand how this pursuit of running, whatever it is for the individual. And, and, and this you know, not to go off on, on a tangent here, I'll, f- I'll finish my thought, but I think this is where it's different for me as someone who works primarily with individuals and you're in an interesting position where you work with individuals, but you also have teams that you're, that you're managing. But for me on an individual level, and I love this about the type of coaching that I do, I've got to understand how this athlete's pursuit of running fits into their life, whether they're professional or elite, competitive age grouper, um, just a an average age grouper who really loves the sport like i 've got to understand how it fits into their life um, and then i've also got to understand enough about the rest of their life without being too nosy or invasive, and how that affects this pursuit of running and, and there's a real you know synergy be- between those things, and that's when we can start having those conversations of like you know okay, this is when we can place a little more importance on the pursuit of running and it's going to cost you x y and z on the flip side you know there are going to be things that are happening in your life whether it's you're pursuing a promotion at work you've got a lot of family stuff going on whatever it may be your energy's got to be there and we've got to dial things back on the running and, and for me as a as a coach that's the most interesting aspect of it is trying to i hate to say keep those things in balance because there's never a, a true balance but to understand how it sways if that makes sense
0: yeah, it, it's really understanding those trade-offs, you know, and being, I think you made a good point there where it's like being aware of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like if you're aware of it and you're aware that, hey, I'm going to go in like deep in on this running thing right now, I think that's totally fine. Or you're aware that, hey, we need to step back because I've got this thing, this, this, and this at work that needs to have my priority and my mm-hmm. attention. I think that's great. I think, you know, I think where we mess up sometimes is when we just kind of get so lost in it and don't have that awareness so that we're choosing when we want to be like all in on something and when we want to be kind of out.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's spot on and it's also helping, you know, the the athlete and this is the important part see and understand these things for themselves so that they can have that perspective. It's not just for us as coaches who are planning their training and helping them work toward this goal, but it's for them to kind of learn how to prioritize things at at different times and to understand when it's okay to to back off and maybe take things a little, you know, take things a little less seriously or give yourself a little bit more grace and and I think that like for me like that's the 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 interesting part of coaching is figuring out those types of dynamics
0: yeah exactly and it's so individual too mm-hmm. right you, you got to know sometimes you get like pushers sometimes you get people who like do a good job balancing it out and it's just i don't know it's like coaching is like figuring out the other the individual sitting across from you mm-hmm. and then and and figuring out where their mindset is and where they they come from right what lens they they see the world through and then also like having this arsenal of of things that you can use to kind of push a button or poke and prod them in different directions or nudge them if you think they're coming off
1: their kind of desired path along these lines what's your biggest challenge as a coach right now oh man
0: ah my biggest challenge um I mean, I think a lot of it is what we talked about in the sense that we're navigating this pandemic, and for some, it seems a little. You know, I have some who feel a little silly, like going up uh, for. Instance, and since I'll give you the college athletes, I've had conversation with college athletes where they're they feel a little silly in the sense that they're getting tested, you know, every week, going through all these precautions, all so that they can run a, a track meet right and well well the rest of the world is going through all this stuff mm-hmm. and it's been like playing that balance of like giving them perspective on it but also like giving them the permission to be like yeah no i understand that um but you know you that doesn't take away from the fact that you have this opportunity to kind of race if you want to and if you enjoy that then like you know do it Go for it. Like, don't feel bad about it. Um, You're not taking away from someone else as long as you're doing all the precautions and all that good stuff.
1: I'm curious. In addition to your full-time duties as a coach at the University of Houston, how many professional athletes are you working with?
0: (laughs) That's a good question. Um, So it's actually trimmed down. I've kind of trimmed down um, during the pandemic. So now it's only a handful. I've handled as much as 10 Mm -hmm. in the past. Um, But honestly, it's, I, I just can't. I can't do as good of a job as I should be able to cuz communication slackens and I've had some great athletes and they you know I've worked with a lot of uh, athletes who have been really good and some who have gone on to other coaches and are still great people and doing great things but like the the problem with me or the the thing I struggle with in balancing college coaching and post collegiate co- coaching is um the communication aspect takes a lot to do the things that we're talking about, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, in terms of like understanding the athlete and understanding the person, and the more I, it's like the more I go in one direction, it takes away from the other side. So I'm really trying to find that balance of how much I can handle college coaching, which is my day job, and then how much I can handle post collegiate coaching, uh, which is something that I
1: love in helping people out. Um, but it's also not my day job. <laughs> Do you have any post-collegiates that you see on a regular basis in Houston, or is it all remote? So right now it's
0: all remote uh, because the post-collegiate athletes I was working with in Houston um, all have recently had kids, babies. So they they are in a, in a kind of breakdown time Um, and probably will be building back up soon. So we'll jump right in there
1: um, soon. But recently, it's all been remote. Before you started coaching at the University of Houston, you were working with professional athletes for a few years in Oregon as a member of the Oregon Project staff. And as you just mentioned, you retain a small roster of post that you work with. Do you think you'd ever have any interest in trying to be a full-time professional coach, or are you happy with the balance that you have now? That's a good question.
0: Um, You know, there's been opportunities along the way to look in that direction, and I I mean, I think it's an interesting challenge and one that I'm always open to, but it's got to be... After what I went through the first go round, it's got to be a good situation mm-hmm. and I mean that in the sense that I know the professional world I love keeping my a hand in it and all that stuff, but I also know how it works and I don't mean that in an entirely negative way, and i'm it things are getting better, but I also know like working for a major Company, how that works and the control and all of that stuff. And it's just kind of put me off to it. So I kind of enjoy the fact that I can work with a handful of marathoners, getting trying to make the trials or doing various things and, you know, help them out in a way, but not be beholden to any company or any person like trying to push me in a certain direction or anything like that.
1: In what ways do you think that's improved at the professional level since the time that you spent in Oregon several years ago?
0: I think we're getting uh, more players in it. So it's less, you know, uh, it's it's less of a couple controlling everything. Mm -hmm. Because I think... I think part of the issue is when you have only a few companies controlling things and it pushes everybody in a certain direction and if you want to make it, you better do A, B, and C. Um, but I think the more companies that are out there, the more competition that is out there, that the more options athletes have. And another thing I think is there's more trans- a, a little more transparency. I mean, honestly, I think you know, uh, having everything out there on what I went through and others went through, I think it helps. I mean, people can still make their decisions, but it's not like it was a decade ago when you'd hear maybe rumors of stuff or not really know how things went at, at different groups or different programs. I feel like now there's there's a better sense so that athletes at least have a little bit more power in the decision-making process.
1: I don't want to get into everything that you went through at the Oregon Project because it's been covered ad nauseum in many, many, many places. uh, So listeners can go find that on their own. But given that, do you think you played a big part in that shift by speaking out about what it is that you experienced in your time there? I hope so. I mean, I really
0: do. I mean, as I think back when I came forward, you know, one of the reasons why I came forward to USADA and then publicly and all that stuff is I kept seeing people go to, in this case, these programs, and I just felt bad for them. You know, I remember feeling like, to use a specific example, I remember when Mary Kane joined the Oregon Project and just being like, oh, like this poor high school girl. Like she has no idea what she's about to get into. Mm -hmm. No idea. And I remember, you know, talking to running friends who knew a little bit and being like, gosh, this poor girl. And it just eats at you because you know, like, well, she has no idea and she's about to go unfortunately jump into into that so you know my hope is that you know people are still going to make what i'd consider dumb decisions at times but at least there's like at least there's information and second and it makes people think and second guess and maybe you know maybe helps the athletes make those choices versus um just kind of defaulting to spots where they think are okay and then not finding
1: out until later. Do you think there needs to be some sort of system in place that monitors all of this or creates a system of checks and balances in a way to ensure that things are being run well and equitably and that Coaches and brands and organizations are treating athletes well and creating a healthy culture.
0: Hundred percent. I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm not smart enough to tell you what that system looks like exactly. But the problem is is pretty much this. I work in the collegiate system. I can tell you how clueless athletes are coming out of out of college um, in terms of what they should be looking for and programs and you also and I don't mean that disparagingly I just mean we're all kind of I mean remember back to when you were coming out when you graduated like did you have any idea what you were getting into in whatever work you were going to nope I mean most people don't right and, and that's kind of how it is in college and I think the other thing that we forget here is that it's it's just a cycle right so college athletes cycle through every couple of years and we forget that they don't know maybe what happened six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years ago, right? Because a 22-year-old, you know, senior this year was, gosh, when I was at the Oregon Project, that kid would have been, you know, what, 12, 13 mm-hmm. years old? Like, they're not, they didn't know what was, they didn't know what that is, right? So... I think, and if you look at, if you look at things, right, if you've paid attention to track long enough, which I know you have, Mario, is, like, there are coaches who have had multiple athletes test positive through the years who still get, you know, new athletes. And why? Well, it kind of cycles, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for a couple years, well, their name is attached to some dirty athlete they might not get anybody. But then a couple of years go by and they get more athletes and then they get more athletes until something else happens to them. But I think if we had some sort of system, not only in terms of drug use, but health and well-being, of making sure that our people in charge of guiding you know, these young professionals are abiding to some sort of standard or code... Uh, would be in- incredibly important. I mean and, and if you look at other professional sports it's like no they don't have, you know, exactly something like that but you've got the commissioner of whatever league who is making sure that if a coach does something d- dumb or has a bad environment that they're held to some sort of standard, right? There's draft picks taken away, there's suspensions occurring you know just look at the nfl and the couple different coaches and yeah they might get second chances and all that stuff but at least there's some sort of accountability um that we don't have in our sport
1: yeah i think that's exactly right and compounding it is the world of athletics even globally uh is very insular. And it's very small. And a lot of people who have been in it have been in it for a long time. And I think because of that, violators get protected when they should be getting booted or reprimanded. And I think we're starting to see that shift a little bit. I've often said that the whole thing just needs to be dismantled and rebuilt, which I realize is not realistic. But I do think we need to have just more people, coaches, athletes, agents, uh, administrators who are advocating for this change. Otherwise, it's just going to be the same old pattern over and over and over again, like you just mentioned.
0: You know, I think you're spot on. And, And I'll go even further. I think that track and field is not professional. And what I mean by that is that we have that insulated system We have almost like an incestuous system in the sense that, like, you get stuck in it, and then you become you you know you become an agent and a coach, and maybe an agent and a coach, and then the athletes. For instance, you know, I could spend hours talking about agents, and not all are bad; some are really good, but like you have agents who have some sort of deal, essentially, with different shoe companies, Mm -hmm. but then the athletes who you know hire these agents don't know that. Let me, you know, I'm I'm going all over the place Keep right going. now but having worked in the book industry, right? Okay? Writing writing books for big big publishers and having a book agent, let me tell you. If I could have my book agent be a track agent, I would in 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 1 second because both Agents I've had for writing books have been incredibly professional, have been incredibly transparent on the whole process. And what I mean by the process is the way quickly writing a book and getting it published works with a major publisher is you essentially write a proposal right, with your agent. You go back and forth, write a book proposal, outline what you're going to do, then your agent sends it off to every major publisher, right? They know, right? They just send it off. The publishers kind of bid on it just like, or kind of give their offers just like you would in sport, right? Say, hey, do we want to sign this athlete or not? Do we want to offer to publish this book or not? And then you kind of choose. But during that whole process, when my agent is submitting, you know, the, the proposal to all these publishers, I'm updated every second along the way, right? On, oh, this one said this. This one said this one might want to offer this. We're going to set up a conversation for you to have with them. I'm not going to, you know, we're not going to make a deal. We're not going to discuss anything until you have this conversation with this publisher. And this publisher has published this, this, and this book. My, my authors who have worked with them, you know, have had good experience, bad experience, whatsoever. It's just entirely professional. And then you get over to the track world, and if you're an athlete, you don't know whether this agent actually will talk to let's I'm gonna throw up hypotheticals, will has a good relationship with Brooks or a good relationship with Nike or tends to segue all their athletes to Nike, or something that again, I've Heard of from firsthand from athletes and coaches and agents, or if they will even tell you of an offer that company A gives because sometimes they don't, and they'll just tell you the offer that company B gives because they want you to go to company B Mm -hmm. because maybe they get, you know, a kickback or whatever have you. Like
1: it's just, it's just so nuts to me how unprofessional like our sport is. Yeah. And I've, witness that from the coaching side a little bit, but just certainly as an observer in the sport, as someone who's worked in the media for a while, you see those patterns. And I think as as you get older and you have more experience in this, you can see how younger athletes especially are getting taken advantage of and the agent who is supposed to be looking out for their client's best interest is really just looking out for their own best interest because they know what they can get um, and they know that it'll put x amount of dollars in their pocket and that this athlete's shelf life you know in the grand scheme of things is is relatively short and it's just sort of this rinse and repeat process and it, it it just like grinds my gears to no end
0: and I think you nailed it there because, you know, that might be the difference. As an author, hopefully my shelf life is, gosh, if I want it to be, you know, 40 years, mm-hmm. right? That's a long time. So you can't, like, screw someone over. But if you're an athlete and you've got maybe this Olympic cycle to show that you can do something and maybe a little bit beyond if you're lucky, Yep. you know, you're talking a couple years. Those timelines are tight. Yep. So... You know, if someone screws over or, you know, ha- isn't looking out for athlete A, it doesn't really impact them. And that is a major, major problem. And the other part, you know, and I'm not trying to call people out. I don't, I, I think that, again, we have some really good agents and some good people, and maybe I'll get in trouble for saying this stuff, but it's too it's not a professional environment. The other thing you see as well that I'll just point out that shows this is we have several professional agents and coaches who are agent coaches, right? That that wouldn't work in any real professional no. sport because it's a conflict of interest. Because if I am coaching someone and also their agent, I have an inherent conflict of interest. Like, it... it, it it doesn't work. It blows my mind that we allow these things and I'm not saying these are bad people who do who are agent and coaches. I'm just saying that that should not occur in a professional setting.
1: Yeah, that and that's the checks and balances that I was referring to earlier and those are some of the obvious examples that just 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 wouldn't be allowed to happen it just like would not be allowed to happen um because anyone with you know with with any common sense at all is like yeah that like those two things can't can't go together um and and when they do it's only going to benefit one side of the relationship
0: exactly exactly i mean it's it just It it just kind of blows my mind. So I don't know. That's my rant. You
1: you and me both. And we can leave it at that for now. I'd love to go back to your time in Oregon working with the Oregon Project and talk about it from a coaching standpoint. In the time that you were there, how did you develop the most as a coach? (laughs) This sounds really
0: bad but it was essentially what not to do mm-hmm. um and i just uh, you know i don't know how else to say it and i understand this could come out as sour grapes or whatever you want to call it but it really was a lot of sitting there and being like well you know i'm not i don't want to do that i'm not going to do that as as you know my future in coaching and that could be things that was things like, you know, um, disregarding like body fat testing and instead being like, well, they look fat to me. So that's, that's good enough. And it could also be things like, you know, I remember being told like never ask an athlete how they feel or how they felt because that, that, you know, tells them, you know, puts them in control and shows that you don't know what you're doing or something like that. I forget the exact explanation. But there were just a lot of things in there where I was just like, okay, I'm not going to do that. And, you know, from the training standpoint, a lot of people ask me, oh, what was the training like? I mean, it was was fine. It was just very straightforward. It was very simple. Um, And there's nothing wrong with simplicity but there wasn't any magic formula in terms of what was done i mean it was very simple is you just rotate through you know essentially short intervals short tempo long intervals long tempo medium intervals you know long run in there and you just rotate through that continuously it was hard work i mean regardless of anything else that was going on obviously um, But there wasn't any, any magical training, anything like that. It was very,
1: very straightforward. To go off on a little tangent about that, in your experience, do a lot of coaches, especially younger ones, tend to overcomplicate training? I know from my experience as a coach, which is nowhere near your level, the most common questions i get are very like programmatic in terms of the workouts and how they're structured and the intervals and the rest and it's not to diminish the importance of those things like that you know that is a a skill and experience definitely comes into play but i mean when i look at some of the most successful athletes in the world and you look at the workouts themselves i mean and, and I try to take this approach with my athletes, they're not complicated in terms of their their structure. And I I see a lot of coaches who try to make things almost like too fancy, or it's like if it doesn't look complicated, it must not be a good workout. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that
0: is, you know, I've been like that too. I think that is the propensity when you're young. Mm-hmm. I, because that's a good point. Because programming is the one thing that we can control. It's the one thing that leads for a little bit of like um, structure and creativity, right? Because you can manipulate the workouts and all these varying degrees and set yourself apart. And I, I, I think that creativity has a place, but you can't get lost in it. And I think a lot of times... When you're young, you get lost in it. Mm-hmm. You get lost in this programmatic world, and I think it's also how we develop as coaches, in the sense that we get taught the programming, the physiology behind the programming, et cetera, et cetera, and that's what we get emphasized. So that's when we come out coaching, we think that that is the key to that is the key to training. But you know, it's people. Let me give you an example. Spending a decade in the post-collegiate world and, and having been fortunate to work with some really good athletes, I get the advantage of seeing basically everyone's training. When I worked with Sarah Hall, for example, I asked, you know, because whenever I work with an athlete, I say, hey, what's your training like in the past? Do you have any logs, et cetera, et cetera? So I got to go look at, you know, years of Terrence Mahon's training from Sarah. Mm -hmm. Terrence is a great coach, right? And then, you know, you go look at another athlete and you get to look at Nick Badeau's training for a year because that's who their coach was or whoever it is. So having done this enough, you know, I've gotten to see all the really good coaches, at least in in the U.S. and uh, some uh, around the world, training. And all I can conclude is that there is no magic secret to it. I mean, we all are emphasizing the same things at this point. We just do them in slightly different ways. And I think that that is the key, is that if you want to be a little creative, that's fine. But you got to make sure that you you are nailing the bread and
1: butter things that just about everybody is doing. I think that's on the money. And I think where a lot of coaches, especially younger ones, get themselves into trouble, is feeling like they need to have a formula or a system that defines their approach. And some of the, let's call it like pop sci literature on that doesn't, help in that regard because you've got, and this is no offense to Jack Daniels, you've got Daniel's running formula. You've got the Lydiard system. People talk about what's Jerry Schumacher's system. And a lot of coaches feel like I need to have a system. I've got to have a formula. And I think when you adopt that mindset, you really you know, you limit yourself and then you end up being hard on yourself because if something goes awry, you're like, well, the formula must be broken or the system doesn't work. Um, and, you're, and you're constantly second-guessing yourself and, and your approach and that's going to kill your confidence as a coach and that's going to rub off on your athletes as well.
0: Yeah, I think you nailed that. And, and it's, it's based on a false premise because go back to Arthur Lydiard, right? We all know how he trains, right? Or, or do we? Like, go back to his, you know, I have one of his first books, which is like the Lydiard training schedules written in the 1960s. And you go in there, and, you know, during his, whatever he called it, the competition phase, he's doing interval training five days a week in these schedules. Well, look at one of his books published just, you know, a decade later, Running to the Top, for example. You look at that same schedule on what they're doing, and it's not the same. I think it's three days of intervals, you know, of varying intervals, instead. And you sit there, well, what is the Lydiard system? Well, the Lydiard system is bass, then hills, then sharpening, whatever you want to call it. But no, the Lydiard system was really, Lydiard experimented Mm -hmm. and kept tinkering and kept tinkering
1: until like it worked for him, and then he kept tinkering with it you know and just that willingness to adapt and evolve is i think one of the elements that made him such a great coach and i think that's what makes a great coach is that ability to be flexible to to some degree i mean certainly to to trust your stuff but to adapt for the athlete or to adapt for the situation and i've just found in some of the younger coaches that have come to me with questions or that I've I've mentored, there's this just rigidness to their thinking. And that's the biggest thing that I'm trying to break them of.
0: Yeah. And you know what I would say to a young coach is understand understand how things work and how you can create workouts. And then you don't get rigid. And what I mean by that is, let's take interval training for example. Okay, Mm -hmm. if you understand like what purpose you're trying to get out of, uh, let's say 400 meter repeats, right? Then you can craft them in any way you want Mm -hmm. to get that adaptation. I can change the interval. I can change the speed. I can change the rest. We can go from jogging to standing to steady. We can change all these variables to get the, the adaptation we want. And the, the grand example I give is if you look at uh, Mahali Igloy's training from the 1950s and 60s. And those guys would do interval training all day long. This was Bob Schul's coach, mm-hmm. Bob Schul. Olympic gold medalist in the 5K and 64, I believe. And they would do no tempo runs, no, no real, they'd have occasional longer stuff, but not much. And people are like, well, he didn't do anything aerobic. I'm like, no, he did. He just did it in a different way. Broke it up. He knew what he was trying yeah. to do. Look at his intervals. He's running intervals, you know, 400 meter repeats that aren't very fast, but they've got like 50 meter jog in between. You know, you do that, it's going to be a it essentially a tempo run. You know, it's just got 50-meter jogs in there. But that's that's the thing I think we miss on this stuff. Instead of looking for the formula, understand what you're trying to, what direction you're trying to get athletes to adapt in, and then design the workout to get them to adapt in based on the constraints you have. You know, one example I'll give before, um, you know, turning it back over is, I got to listen to Lydiard the day before he passed away. He spoke in Houston. And I went there and listened, and I'll never forget a couple things he said, but one that really stood out is we're in Houston, and Lydiard has this big hill phase, right, where you bound up hills, and he was going on in this. And someone asked, and they said, hey, we're in Houston. I don't have hills nearby. And he said, that's fine. Just... Figure out another way to get the adaptation. He said, bound up stadiums, stairs. You have all these big football stadiums here. Go use those. Or, you know, if you can't, pull a tire and simulate it in a different way to get that strength component in there. And his, his, his advice was just like, this is the adaptation I'm trying to get, the strength on the springiness, right, of going up the hill. It doesn't have to be this. Like, Figure out how you're going to get it in your environment and then go after
1: it. I love that. I want to stay on coaching for a little bit longer before moving on to some of the other topics I'd like to discuss with you. But going back to your time in high school. I remember some a few years older than you, but I remember following your career cuz you were one of the best runners in the country, but correct me if I'm wrong. Were you essentially coaching your high school team while you were on it? <laughs>
0: I I had a really good high school coach. Um who was who, you know, he was he was awesome. Uh coach Gerald Stewart and just briefly he was a, basically coached all the track events. And it was more sprint coach until my sophomore year was his first year after like 25 years of coaching track to coach distance. And we would, and he, it was the greatest thing because he, man, and, and he was a really good sprint coach. So my freshman year before he started coaching um, distance, he coached the number one 100 meter guy in the nation who ran 10, two eight legal wind in high school that year. So, he was a really good sprint coach. And he took over cross-country and he said, Steve, I'm going to learn everything I can about this. So, he read everything. He went to all these clinics. He talked to all these people. And, you know, he came up and we'd have these conversations on what do you think about this? What do you think we need more of? What do you think we need less of? And it was a really cool experience. And he essentially, you know, let me control like my mileage and what we what I was doing there and it's like as long as you know his his answer was pretty simple is as long as I see you bouncing out out the door you know on your run from the school in the morning and you look like you got some pop in your step then I'm going to let you keep going if you start looking sluggish then I'm going to intervene and it was it was a really cool experience to have someone who uh, was willing to listen and then have like this
1: partnership that that kind of developed. How did the two of you get the rest of the team on board with that approach?
0: You know, we were very uh, we were very fortunate, and that we had a good group that just wanted to be good. So until my. My sophomore year in cross-country was the first time in the 30 years the school had been open that the boys cross-country team made it to the state meet in cross-country. So it wasn't like we had this long history of success. And we just had, you know, a couple guys, Gabe, Paulo, uh, Frankie, who just bought in. And we just decided, you know, we're going to be we're going to try and be good. And we were, we, our school was maybe 15 minutes from the Woodlands High School, which is perennially for the last three decades or more, one of the best programs in the nation for distance running. And we just thought, you know what, they're putting in a heck of a lot of work. So we're going to do the same thing. And it just became the norm where, you know, we were running a a ton and not every you know I ran a ton but a lot of my teammates were running 70 80 miles a week and putting in you know seven eight nine ten mile tempo runs and all sorts of stuff and it it just became you know it was it was the norm like once once we adapted to it it just became the thing to do and the example I'll give you is is Coach Stewart you know over the summer Six days a week, he'd drive up to this this park that was pretty local. And he'd be there every morning at 7 30 in the morning. So we'd all just meet him there and go for a run in the morning. And then most of us were running doubles on, on the varsity. So that's 7 30 in the morning. Well, 7 PM, we'd just get together at this local right outside this local golf course. And run another five, six, seven miles, depending on mileage, at 7.30 in the evening, every single, well, five days a week during, during the summer. And that was just the normal
1: thing to do. <laughs> Did you think of yourself as a coach at the time, in addition to being an athlete on the team who's putting in all this work alongside your training partners? No, I mean, I just wanted us to be good. So like
0: we you know I cared about the sport and I cared about running fast and I cared about my teammates who I was going at it with and you know we were just we were just bought in and that meant like helping each other out and it was in track season it was even crazier because again our coach coach Stewart like he coached basically every event like he had a we had a couple um, you know, assistant coaches, especially once basketball season came out, who would help in the high jump or the throws or whatever have you. But he was coaching every event. So in the track season, every, you know, he'd be like, okay, you know, we're going to do 800 meter repeats and we'd have this grass loop that was adjacent to the track. And it would be, you know, Steve, go get people started. Let's Go get it going. And it's like, I'll watch. And then I got to run back to the sprints and then I got to run back.
1: But it was just, it was just kind of the norm. We just got things done. I remember from following your training in high school or reading about it, you just alluded to this a minute ago. You put in a lot of work. I mean, you were running like super high mileage, long tempo runs, grinding it out, you know, in the heat of a Houston summer. Earlier in this conversation, I mean, right off the top, we talked about just, How busy your life is and how much work you do, you know, as a coach, as a writer, as a podcast host, like just as a husband. Where does your work ethic come from? (laughs) Um, It's pretty incredible. You know,
0: I don't want to paint a false picture. I have a very good work ethic on things I care about. And I think that is the key. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll quote my older brother who is the, has a PhD in political science and does some think tank thing. But growing up, he'd always tell me I was lazy. And I say that because I was lazy, except my retort would always be, and this was when, when I was in high school and he was a freshman in college, and my retort would be, I just ran 15 miles today, which is like the, you know, eightieth day in a row that I've run over 14 miles or whatever. That's not lazy. I'm spending more calories than you. And we'd have this back and forth because my brother was super academic focused mm-hmm. and I was not. And I think to answer your question, my work ethic comes when I care about something deeply. And then I want to see, you know, kind of how good or or that it does benefit to the world in it and if it doesn't then I'm not I don't work hard at things
1: <laughs> makes sense I operate in a similar way so I I totally jive with that related to work ethic is competitiveness and hearing you just describe that interaction with your brother were you too competitive with one another not in you know a running sense head to head but just in terms of the things that you were working on and trying to maybe one up one another in terms of your accomplishments?
0: I mean, I think there's a degree of that. I mean, I think it, it helped. I mean, growing up is, was interesting. Again, my brother's v- was very academically, um, uh, focused and did very well academically, uh, all throughout high school and college and beyond. Um, I think he was our academic whatever, whatever academic state champ thing they had. He was it. But I think what it did was initially it pushed me in the other direction. So my brother was academic focused. So I went all in on sports. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at first that was soccer. And then that became running. And I didn't care about academics. Mostly, I think, because like my brother had gone in that direction. So I think we both had this, like, drive or have this drive to do, you know, various things. And and sometimes I'm sure, it, you know, we would compete probably for our parents' attention or what, what have you. Um, but for the most part, it was in 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 different avenues that like we'd spur each other on through. I guess
1: you wrote a bit about this in peak performance, but. You were a super accomplished high school miler, like you talked about earlier, knocking on the door of breaking four minutes. You've put a lot of pressure on yourself to hit those times and achieve certain performances. What's your relationship with pressure look like now? Oh, man. Um... Or maybe how is your relationship with pressure evolved from the time that you were a high school athlete to now a somewhat well-adjusted adult who is coaching young athletes?
0: I would say back then, I didn't realize how much pressure I put on myself. And that the pressure I put on myself was probably the biggest thing. Um, it, And it took me a while to learn this, and the, it, it was kind of the story I was telling myself in my head had more effect on on, on pressure and expectations and anxiety around mm. it than any external thing. So it was more that I cared about, you know, running sub four in the mile and saw it was a big deal, and therefore you know, 10 x it in terms of the meaning. And then I'd create this story that, oh, it meant a lot to others, et cetera, et cetera. I think how that's evolved is I'm more adept at understanding and seeing where pressure is coming from mm-hmm. and identifying it. And then kind of, I would say, navigating and understanding, is this something real? Or is this something that, like, I feel this anxiety, I feel this pressure that I'm just doing to myself? And I think that is a big key that makes it uh, much more tolerable and enjoyable to deal with, you know, we'll call them high-pressure situations occasionally than I, than I, you know, did when I was younger.
1: What advice would you give your younger self in that regard?
0: Uh. Chill out? No, that's the worst advice you can give. Never tell anyone to chill out. Um, I, I I would just say, you know, I think what I needed was patience and perspective in the sense that I wanted to work really hard to accomplish what I wanted to in that moment and did not think about the future. I did not think what I wanted to do um, in real life, until like my running career was almost over to a degree, um, nothing nothing really mattered except for like what was going on at that moment, which was like how do I run faster. So I, I think having some patience and then also perspective in the sense that when I was young, I thought that if I wasn't all in. And if things weren't all directed in this direction that was running, then I wouldn't accomplish, like I wasn't going to perform up to my ability. Mm-hmm. And now I quite clearly see that that is not not the case. And sometimes in order to perform up to your ability or your capabilities, You've got to, you know, lessen the load and have a little perspective and have other things that you can turn to and go to in order to open up or free yourself to be able to achieve what you need to achieve.
1: Pivoting a little bit, as someone who was one of the best high school runners in the country when you were of that age, and as someone now who is trying to recruit some of these athletes as a collegiate coach. I'm curious, what do you make of the crazy fast times and the depth that we have been seeing at the high school level these past few years?
0: Yeah, it's, it's kind of wild. I mean, it's, the sport has changed um, since both of us were back in high school. And it's it's kind of hard to make sense of, you know. In some ways, I think it's great in the sense that you have a lot of good information. You've got some great coaches. Coaches are better than ever. I think, I think high school coaches are, um, you know, are are fantastic. Uh, I think they do a really good job and put in the work for the most part. The one thing that concerns me a little bit is the early what I'll call professionalization of it. Mm-hmm. I'm not opposed to like traveling to big meets and doing all this stuff, but what I I kind of you know, it kind of makes me sad a little bit to see athletes skipping out on the team aspect sometimes. Um sometimes skipping, you know, their team and going straight with a club coach or or somewhat professional coach. And I understand it. And I think as a high school kid, I get it. Or I would have gotten that too if that was a, a, an option. But I don't know. I, I think that I just worry sometimes if we professionalize things too early in a sport that is very demanding and grueling, um, that we can shoot ourselves in the in the foot.
1: I agree with that. You got to let the kids be kids.
0: Yep. I mean, that's that's kind of what it is. And, you know, that's what people ask me a lot about my high school career in terms of all the training I did. But what you have to realize is that was my choosing. Like, that was my personality. And that, no, I didn't have any professional club coach. I didn't have, my parents didn't care uh, whether I trained that day or not. Like, it was all me, <laughs> And I think sometimes where, and I'll say this from a college coaching standpoint, where we get in trouble is where the kid is not making the decisions and is not the driver. I think sometimes when the motivation comes from the parent, when it means more to the coach than it does to the kid, then we're in a position of trouble and we're headed down a, Uh, towards a bad path.
1: I think that's really good advice. Last question along these lines. I asked it to Chris Miltenberg a couple months back, but I'm curious from your perspective as a collegiate coach and someone who's been in that system now for, I believe, eight or nine years, if I'm not mistaken, how has the presence and evolution of social media affected your athletes and maybe the way that you interact with them (laughs) um
0: among my athletes has given me some nice street cred because of uh i have a decent (laughs) um no (laughs) in in all seriousness it it's it's changed well i'll answer this in two ways is is one I think it's made my job very much clear on that I have to push or engineer places where we can have interaction. Because I think that when you're young, it's very easy to get caught up into the social media is the real world, whether that's Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, whatever. Um, And it's not. And I think we have to do, we have to, you know, cultivate that. I have to cultivate team dinners, team, you know, activities, whatever, space after workouts where kids can interact and decompress and not just default to the social media. Um, And the second one I would say is this kind of counters that, but I, 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 I think it does on purpose or I'm going to say it on purpose in the sense that we've got to give kids credit and the sense that they're able to, it's not like social media is going to, you know, destroy these kids. In a lot of ways they're better at navigating it than many of my peers in their late twenties, early thirties are. And I think we can learn a lot actually from kids and
1: how to do that in a better way. Talk to me a bit about writing and your process. You have published three books at this point, Science of Running, Peak Performance, and The Passion Paradox. You have a solo book upcoming, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Has writing always been something that you've enjoyed? No. <laughs> uh, do you enjoy it now?
0: Yes, I do. Uh, I, I do. I love writing right now. Um, when I was younger I thought I was horrible at writing, honestly. I mean through high school, didn't didn't write much, didn't read much. Um, I think in high school I read you know, I read Once a Runner, Running with the Buffaloes and Tom Sawyer. And that, that those were the only books. Tom Sawyer being the only high school English book that I actually finished. And and I say that not to make light of it, but I wasn't a writer or I wasn't a reader and I was not a writer. It was not until much later um, into my college years where I started to take up reading and writing um, and grow to enjoy it. So I think my message is if you consider yourself, hey, I'm not a reader, I'm not a writer, don't worry, there's hope. Because <laughs> it's like anything. If you like start to understand it and understand the nuance of it, then it can be a really enjoyable process.
1: How important is being a good reader to being a good or improving writer? I, I, you
0: know, I think it's huge. One thing, again, I'll step back and say, I am, you know, Brad laughs at me when I say this, but it's true. I am like the world's slowest reader. Oh no, I think I got you beat. I'd fight you on that. (laughs) All right. Good, good to know. But, but, but I still like take the time to do Mm -hmm. it because it's that important. Another thing that I'll say is I see it I see writing as like making connections. Like my job as a writer is to make these different connections and tie these things together that maybe weren't tied together or connected before. I'm not creating anything new, really, because there is so much information out there that there is seldom stuff that is new. The same goes for training, but in writing especially. What I'm doing is trying to create novel connections in the And the way to be able to do that, the wider, the more breadth you have in your reading, I'm a firm believer that 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 creates almost, we'll use running terms, that creates a huge base. And the bigger the base you have, the more connections you can kind of make. So I think if you're going to be a writer, read far and wide, read as, you know, select your topics and go wide. And if you do that, you're going to be in a much better
1: spot. Give me an example of what your reading lineup looks like. Maybe what it is that you're reading right now, or more broadly, how you try to mix up the subject matter, author's genre of reading. I'd love to learn a little bit more about that.
0: Sure. Um So I'm sitting next to my library now, so I can read you down a list of what I'm reading now, and then I'll tell you why. Um, So recent books or books I'm reading, I've got Born Losers, which is a history of failure in America, so history book. I've got Adam Grant's recent book, Think Again, Judd Brewer's Unwinding Anxiety, uh, Gifted Children by Ellen Winner, which is on... Prodigies and Phenoms, and then The Handbook of Embodied Cognition and Sports Psychology. So what you see there, hopefully, is you see this mismatch of things, and that's generally how I go about my reading, is I love reading technical science stuff. I love reading journal stuff. Um, I think that's important. So that's one category, and then I have some one normally one book going on that is what I'd call still sciencey but more enjoyable in terms of pop mm-hmm. psych, so something that's the easier read, like Adam Grant's book, very good science, but it's the easy read, right It's entertaining, and then I'll have at the same time one or two kind of denser books like for example, in those maybe gifted children or the born losers that are more depth historical et cetera and my my trick is pretty simple is I just rotate between maybe not those five, but I'll rotate between probably three books at a time because again, I'm a really slow reader, and I get kind of bored um and whenever I get bored of one subject or one book, I'll switch. To something in the completely different direction. And a lot of times that re-engages me and allows me to kind of continue that process. And while I'm reading, all I do is I have a pen, I I underline certain things, and then I have a piece of paper that serves as my bookmark for each one. And for key things, I just write down the page number and then a word or sentence or two of the key topic that I want To understand. And then once I'm done reading, you know, maybe once every two months, I go back through my recent reads and then kind of take those notes and translate it over to uh, a file on uh, my computer of like big ideas and topics that I want to keep
1: in mind for some major project. Do you typically. Read books all the way through, will you jump around in some of those like pop side type of books and maybe read the chapters that appeal most to you, or will you just put a book down if you lose interest in it?
0: yeah, I have no I have no qualms with uh, giving up on a book, so I'm not one of those who has to read it through, so generally, I will skip around, I will put a book down. I will focus on different chapters. Um,
1: Yeah. When you wrote your first book, Science of Running, which you self-published, when did you either realize that you had a book on your hands or make the decision that that was something you wanted to write? So that was an interesting one.
0: Um, It started with... I did a grad school thesis on periodization for endurance athletes. And then my thesis advisor left to, to go to another school and I got the job at Nike essentially or was in the I was in the process of getting that job and had to graduate. So I quickly changed my thesis to something completely different which was um stress fracture prevention in runners, okay? So I had literally probably 150 pages of in-depth scientific, you know, review of everything that went into periodization, training for distance runners, okay? I sat on that for a couple years. It just sat there. Then when I left Nike... I began to think, well, maybe this could be a book, and I was looking around, being like, you know what? At that time, I was reading every training book for the last couple of years during my time at Nike and beyond. I was reading every training book, and I always felt, uh, I, I felt like I was wanting more. There was more there, okay, and. I couldn't find the book that I, you know, really wanted. Mm-hmm. So at some point I just said, you know what? I'm gonna write it. I love it. And then <laughs> to kind of tie things together, I don't know if I've ever told this publicly, but at some point the the Oregon Project stuff was gonna come out in the in the uh you know in the public. And I thought, you know what? I wanna make sure that I'm secure and financially okay in case I lose my job. And that is when I was just like, I talked to a couple publishers. Everyone basically was like, this is too in-depth. Like, This won't sell in the masses. So at some point, I was just like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to put this out in the world, self-publish it, get some finances. That way I'm okay if something crazy happens with my career. And that's how that book came about.
1: How well did it do? Or or has it done?
0: Yeah, it's it's been great. I mean, it's it's. I call it my little pension fund because it it sells well. I mean, it's gosh. Last I checked, probably close to in total thirty thousand copies. Do you think you'd ever write a second
1: edition or update it?
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I've gotten asked that a couple of times. Once, by a uh, former editor at Rodale, asked me if I would do that. And maybe at some point, because it needs a lot of editing, because again, it was kind of me not knowing what I was doing and rushing it out. But at some point, I probably will. Uh, But I want to make sure that I'm doing it out of like, I have the time and energy to go deep into the physiology
1: and science of it, because I think that's really important. One thread I want to pull on, because you just mentioned it, related to... The book, Science of Running, you called it your your pension fund, but it was also a security blanket for you in case you lost your coaching job. So you were at the University of Houston when all the stuff came out about the Oregon project. Obviously, you're still there in coaching, but at any point, were you really fearful that you were going to be done and they were going to cut you off staff? Or did you receive a lot of support throughout the entire process?
0: I mean, I was, I, it, it was great. I got a lot of support. I mean, like the staff here is phenomenal. Um, really good boss. They gave me a ton of support. So it was more before that, before it came out that I was worried because we had so many connections and, you know, we're a Nike sponsored school and all that good stuff. So and I believe they were renegotiating the Nike sponsorship at, that, at at around that same time. So that had me super worried. Um, but I'm very
1: thankful that I had a lot of good support. Back to writing and to close out this conversation. Talk to me a bit about toughness. I know from talking to you offline that you are just about done with the manuscript to your next book, which is going to be a solo project. Your last two were a collaboration with Brad Stolberg, Peak Performance and the Passion Paradox. But I'd love to learn more about this this next project and what it's about and when we can expect to see it.
0: Yep. So uh, it's just in the beginning stages. So I'd expect it uh, in 2022. Uh, so keep your eye out. But w- what it essentially is, and I think... <laughs> It's something, it's on toughness, and it's redefining toughness. And I think this will resonate with the runners among us in the sense that a lot of times toughness is defined in this, what I'd call this old-school football mentality, Mm -hmm. right, of, oh, you're just gonna, you're gonna push through the pain, you're gonna play until you puke, you're gonna, if you hurt your collarbone or whatever, we're gonna put you back on the field. And as any runner knows, like trying to always fight and grind through things doesn't work. And to me, and where the science says, and there's some fascinating biology behind this, but it's really about creating the space so that you can navigate that discomfort. So it's really taking an in-depth look, not only on the physical side, but also the psychological side, of what it means to navigate discomfort, and how we can do that in a better, more productive um, way than just this old school model, this Bobby Knight model of you know just just grit your teeth and try and try and grind through things.
1: Oh, I love that. That's right up my alley. It actually reminds me of an article that. I just read and linked to in my morning shakeout newsletter, and it was written by Sabrina Little, who is an incredible ultra runner, but is also a philosophy professor at Moorhead State, I believe, in Kentucky. Anyway, I love reading her writing, and she does a column for I Run Far, and the, the column was called Toughness Reconsidered. And she looked at it through a very similar lens and tied in some philosophy to it. I'll send it to you after we get off this recording here but I think it's an important topic especially given this greater discussion of coaching that that we've had some of the things that you've experienced in your career and I know it's a it's kind of a nebulous term that people define in different ways and it can create a lot of confusion depending on who it's coming from and the environment that we're in
0: yeah, exactly. No, I'd love to read that. Anything around that topic I'm I'm trying to dive into now. But yeah, it really is. And there's just a lot of nebulous uh is a good good word for it. And I think if we can get some clarity on it, especially for coaches, my hope is, but also for, you know, everybody else is it it, it, it kind of coincides with this other phenomenon which I think we that occurs too in, in the sense that in the the world we tend to think of tough people as like these people who show no emotion, have no weakness, or almost have this like false bravado. Mm -hmm. And I want to, you know, it's like, with running, that false bravado, that false confidence that showing no emotion doesn't really work. Sometimes you have to, you know, feel the pain or feel the hurt, and then like navigate through it and accept it. So I think there's a Well, my hope is there's a lot there for people to learn and and hopefully bring something good into the world.
1: Last question. Talk to me a bit more about what you are continuing to work on with your co-author, Brad Stuhlberg. For those listening to this who don't know, the two of you work together on The Growth Equation, which is a lot of different things. It's a website, it's a newsletter, it's a podcast. You guys put out some incredible... Content, I'd love to just learn more about it and for my listeners to learn more about it from your perspective, who it's aimed at, and what you're trying to achieve.
0: Yeah, we're, you know, we're just trying to put good things off into the world. You know, we, similar to you, Mario, we just want to, we, we are very fortunate that we have a voice and we want to provide evidence based like science backed no bs ways to improve your performance health well-being and that's kind of what it's about like that's why we do we do a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for we do a weekly podcast and we just take on topics that are kind of ripe in the performance and well-being world but we don't have we don't (laughs) we're not trying to sell anybody anything right we're not trying to hype up some supplement or some workout routine we're just after what actually works and trying to like give you nuance instead of like the simple story so that's that's kind of our driving mission and you know, sometimes I, I laugh with Brad because we, we give too, many, too much nuance on like, well, it could be this or this or this, but that's how the world is. Yeah, life's messy. Yeah, it's, it's just a messy world. So we're just trying to, you know, sort through that mess, present it. And, you know, we have all faith in our audience that they're smart enough to kind of sort through it and understand it and, uh, you know, go on that journey towards mastery with us. Well,
1: I'm a big fan of it. I love the podcast. I just listened to the two of you talking to Judd Brewer about the book you mentioned a little while ago, Unwinding Anxiety, which I highly recommend. The newsletter every Thursday morning is a treat in my inbox. You and Brad each write your own take on some topic that week and then link off to some shorter pieces or podcasts that are worth checking out. You can sign up for that at thegrowtheq.com. But Steve, this was super fun. really appreciated the last hour and a half getting to talk to you thank you so much for coming on the morning shakeout podcast
0: oh thanks for having me mario really appreciate everything you're doing and and love all your work so thanks a lot for having me and keep it
1: going All right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Gooder for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running apparel brand born from a desire to celebrate both the history and evolving culture of the sport. They recently released their spring collection full of stylish gear perfected for the pursuit of personal excellence. Designed for running hard and logging miles as the season shifts, this collection is designed with endurance in mind. And right now, Tracksmith is offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of 75 bucks or more. Just use the code MARIO15, that's MARIO15, when you check out at tracksmith.com. Gooder sunglasses are just the best. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. They're also super affordable with most pairs costing just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. I'm a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger's Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. And yes, those are just a couple of the recklessly fun names that they have in their collection. So if you want to support the podcast and treat yourself to a pair of gooders, head over to gooder.com slash Mario or enter the code Mario at checkout to take advantage of a great deal. off your entire order that's g-o-o-d-r.com slash mario that's m-a-r-i-o to get 15% off your entire order your face will thank you if you enjoyed this episode please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on instagram twitter or facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show you can also leave a rating and a review on apple podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me Couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out as always to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you will love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, five, ten minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.